Hey guys, it's Michael from The Honest Youth Pastor back again with the fifth and final video in this series on the church and social justice and really my opinion on how we should react as believers to the whole, everything that's going on right now with social justice and everything that falls underneath that. Before we get into it, there's a few things I want to say from the onset. This video specifically that I'm making, this whole series really has been for those that follow and believe in Christ. Um, if you're outside of the church, if you don't believe yourself to be a Christian, if you don't follow Jesus, some of these things within um, this series, especially this video, just simply probably won't make a ton of sense. Maybe they do, but my guess is that some of it's going to, some of it's just simply not going to make sense. So with that in mind, if you still want to watch it, great, awesome, thank you so much. Also, a few things we need to cover before we get into it much further. If you don't want to watch this whole video and look at my dumb face the whole time, and are really just looking for the contents, there will be an audio link below as well that will allow you to go to the podcast and listen to the audio of this video, as well as if you haven't watched the uh, book overviews uh, that kind of lead up to this video, the audio for those as well uh, is over there as well. Also, links in the description below for uh, the book overviews that, that really helped build sort of the foundation of this overview. Uh, if you haven't watched those, or if you're interested in those, you can go uh, watch those as well. Those are an hour, though, long, so it's really, it's gonna, you're going to have to be interested in it to devote that much time to it. Lastly, before we get into it, there's a lot of resources that one could um, kind of consume in regards to social justice and critical theory. Some of those resources, some people are going to say is good. Some of those resources, others are going to say is absolutely just trash and they're not going to suggest them. So what I've done below, there's a few um, that you can look at. One, I have an overview of critical race theory. It's a YouTube video, really walks through uh, Derek Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, sort of the whole, uh, the whole movement of really taking critical race theory and applying it uh, within their day. There's a, a, a series of five videos by Travis McNingley, I think is his name, probably got that wrong where he goes through and really basically uh, dives pretty deep into um, critical race theory specifically and how it has to do with the church. I found that to be a fairly helpful series. Uh, if you want to go check that out, that's a lot of time as well. Then there's two Instagram links that are going to be down in the description as well. One of them is a panel discussion, and it's called uh, Critical Race Theory For It or Against It, and it's a panel. It's incredibly long. But what it'll show, I mean, I would encourage you to watch this one for sure. What it'll show is kind of um, a more modern day version of what it looks like to hold to critical theory and kind of the tension and discussion that's had within that uh, from people that are not believers, or at least as far as I can tell, wouldn't claim to be believers. Now, underneath that, uh, there's a video called Breakdown of Critical Race Theory. It's an IGTV video also from one of the people on that panel that would be opposite my viewpoint. So I want to provide to you some resources on both sides that kind of give you um, a good balance here because I don't want to think for you. I want to give you the things to provide you to think for yourselves. Uh, lastly, uh, there is a three-part series that John Harris does at the Autumn Bible Conference uh, where he basically walks through his book that I'm going to mention in this in this video and I also did an overview on but I found it helpful because it really unpacks some of the things he talks about in his book so if you haven't watched my book overview just skip that entirely go to these three that three-part series and that's going to cover from the author's mouth what he was talking about what he means so it's just that would be better for you probably uh, in the long run 
Uh, okay, all that being said, uh, if you're still here and you're still here for the video, there will be a video outline or a timeline down below that if you want to skip to a particular part, you can. Or later on, uh, shortly after this video uploads, I'll also be uploading uh, kind of clips from this longer video. So if you want to share them, uh, but you don't want to share the whole video, that will be there for you as well. So let's get into it and kind of what we're going to talk about. And so you kind of know the breakdown of what's happening. Uh, I want to tell you why I did this video series to begin with. Um, then I want to move on to social justice and the comparisons we have from specifically the 1970s and the comparisons we have to now with social justice. Then I want to move into the new definitions that we see uh, really taking place within the last five to six years. And then I want to cover the church's reaction to not only the social justice movement, but also kind of these new definitions and who holds them and who's using them. Uh, after, after we talk about the church's reaction, I want to kind of put out there kind of the trajectory of what I see happening within the broader church in America and kind of my prediction for where that might go based solely on opinion, but also the facts and the, the data that I see um, through kind of looking into this a little bit more. And then lastly, I want to cover about, you know, what does the church do? What, how do we address what's happening in a way that's, that's scriptural um, and will lead us to be able to speak of the gospel uh, more and more so that more may come to know who Jesus is. So just so you know, that's kind of the outline. The description uh, timeline will be in the description. If you want to you know, jump around, um, you can do that as well. That'll be down there. So let's get into it. Why did I do this series? Well, I, I wanted to know more about uh, specifically critical race theory. That was really uh, the, the main thing that I was interested in because I had seen it come up quite a bit. More and more people were talking about it. And the more I dove into it and the more I looked at it, the, there were more and more voices saying, you know, this person doesn't understand it. This person is using the wrong definition. Nobody actually knows what's talking about. Nobody can pin it down. This is some just word that people throw out into the ether and nobody knows what it means. So I thought, well, there, there has to be a definition for this. There has to be some place where you can go to look up what it is. So I was interested in that. But as I started looking into critical race theory and really started this whole project based on that, I found that I really had to back up to more of a critical theory, which is where critical race theory comes from. It's under an umbrella of critical theory. But even more than that, I had to back out to more just a view of social justice, which is kind of where critical theory connects to loosely. There's a lot behind it. This video, by the way, is not a video based on describing what critical race theory is or what social justice is. Uh, we're going to be looking at primarily kind of the flow of what happened and what led us here today. Because the question of the video is, is Christianity compatible with critical theory? And I want to give you my answer for that first. So in case you're here for that, I don't string you along through the whole video. Um, I want to give you what I believe to be the answer to that and then kind of unpack that as we go through. Okay. So my answer is, is critical theory compatible with Christianity? And I would say it's not. Um, basically, uh, to, I want to spend the rest of this video unpacking that answer. Because as soon as I say no, Christianity is not compatible with critical theory. There's going to be people that push back immediately. In fact, anytime I post a meme about critical theory or critical race theory, there's automatic pushback. So I want to make sure that I explain myself in such a way that even if you don't agree with me, at least I've given an explanation to you for why I don't think it's compatible. 
the short version, if you're just going to check out and not watch the rest of the video, I at least want to give you a short version. The short version is that critical theory holds itself up as an answer to the problem of sin that we see in society, right? So as human beings, we know that sin is a thing. We know that evil is real. Like you don't have to look very far outside of your bubble to see that uh, the sin is real. Evil happens. There are horrible, horrendous things that that would keep you up every single night that maybe do keep you up every single night and you, you don't know how to process them. And that's what worldviews are for to help us identify evil, to name it, and then to fight against it and to seek for the end of it. And critical theory holds itself up as a, a tool or a worldview in which to do that, to identify certain evils, uh, whether it be in economics or in gender or sexuality or race or a variety of other things, and say, well, here, this is the problem, and we have a solution for that. The reason I would say, before we get into the rest of the video, that critical theory is not compatible with Christianity is because it's actually in competition with Christianity. The Bible is sufficient for everything that a Christian needs. We don't need other lenses in which to view things through. When the Bible already says, here is sin, this is what it looks like, and this is how it should be dealt with. So we don't need, for example, critical theory to tell us uh, economic disparities. When the Word tells us, how we should be generous and how we should interact with one another. Okay, we, we don't need critical theory to tell us how to identify or interact with gender and sexuality when scripture shows us God's intent for man and woman and marriage and uh, how a family is to be built. We don't need critical theory to tell us, you know, how to interact with different ethnicities and races uh, because we know that the Bible says that the reason that, you know, this is how we're not prejudiced against one another. This is how we're supposed to interact with one another. This is how we are to treat others graciously. Now, in all three of those categories I mentioned, and there's more that I can mention, people will automatically push back and say, well, yeah, but the Bible's been around a long time and there is economic disparity and there is confusion in gender and sexuality and there is racism and horrible things that have happened because of that. But my response is that we don't just say, well, Scripture obviously isn't sufficient for it then. We need something else. I think we need to recognize that hum humanity has fallen, go back to the base principle that we all know, that there is evil and sin in the world, and say that, yeah, we, we haven't done uh, it real well. As believers, there, there's a lot of things that we failed at in, order, in, in, in regards to applying the scriptures well and in actually living out the church the way that we see scriptures saying that the church should be lived out. Discipleship being one of those things that honestly we've just dropped the ball on. Church discipline, another thing we've done kind of poorly over um, a long time. So we don't just say, well, we did those things poorly, so we don't, the scripture obviously isn't sufficient for those things. We actually say, we, we recognize that we've done it poorly. And we say, we want to seek after God. We want, we want the Holy Spirit to continue to change our hearts, change our minds, sanctify so we can do this better. So that our lives and minds are changed in such a way that we do handle economic issues in a biblical way. Because often what happens is we trade just one worldview for another, right? So for a really long time, we've had a political worldview where we go, no, well, this is the Christian party, or this is the Christian party, or no, this is the way Christians should interact with politics. Always and continually forgetting how Jesus lays out on the Sermon on the Mount that the kingdom of God is like this. 
We always attach ourselves for whatever reason, just like uh, God's people, uh, just like Israel always attaches itself to something else. We're always having to be called back to scripture, to, to, to God and what he said and how he, he, he demands his people be holy and set apart and his. So that's the kind of the, 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 the brief explanation, but I want to dig into it a little bit more because I want to dig into how we got here where so many people have either declared, you know, social justice good or bad, or that we should be attached to this political party or this worldview, and really dig into that a bit. And I want to start with one of the books that I think that, oh, I don't think, I, I did not think John Harris's book was going to be as good as it was in really laying out the foundation for how we can see what's happening now and connecting it to what happened um, back in the 70s. So if you haven't watched that overview, let me give you a brief uh, idea. The first six or seven chapters, John Harris kind of lays out the foundations for those that were social justice activists within the early to mid-70s. And those social justice activists in the early to mid-70s were very interesting in regards to all of their backgrounds, basically had three things, three or four things that um, were similar amongst all of them, but none of them met till later. The, the three or four things that were very similar were most, if not all of them, came from fundamentalist Christian backgrounds in which they, uh, the things that the fundamentalist church preached about and taught about, they disagreed with, they didn't like, they weren't sure about. And then the civil rights uh, movement was happening. And a lot of these people that were social justice activists in the early 70s and mid 70s, did, when they were growing up and even in the 70s, uh, but especially the 60s, and they... They, they were very taken aback by the way that the church either interacted with the social rights or civil rights movement or just ignored it altogether or stood up against it. And it really left this bad taste in their mouth. So those two things already, just what the church already preached and taught against, plus the reaction to civil rights was, was enough to kind of, you know, put them on edge. The one thing that seemed to really bring them all together, the kind of the, the push that kind of pushed them out of the church was the, the war in Vietnam. Uh, as John Harris kind of outlays in his book, all of these individuals really bonded over the fact that the church responded uh, to the war in Vietnam as a support of uh, the United States doing it. And they, they all were against the war. And this kind of this, this shared hatred for the war brought them together. This, this uncertainty of why the church reacted the way it did to the civil rights movement brought them together. And just altogether, the baseline of what the fundamentalist church that they grew up in taught brought them together as well. Now, the very interesting thing to me in all of this was as I was reading through this, I, I could not help but see the comparisons to the civil, uh, I'm sorry, the social justice activists of the 1970s and what's happening now in social justice and the church as well. I think it's important to note that the social act justice activists that were that John mentions in his book, the early 70s and mid 70s, are people that are primarily, with with a couple exceptions, still alive today. So they're still having an impact and a hold uh, within Christianity today, even because even though they had left the church, many of them came back. Uh, and they had what we would consider deconstructed their faith. So they had taken things off of it and then added things to it. But two of them were professors of, or not professors, presidents of uh, seminaries. Uh, a few of them went into nonprofits as far as economics and, and civil rights. 
But what we see comparison-wise to the social justice activists of the 70s and now is much of what's happening within the progressive Christian church, uh, the deconstruction movement, uh, the ex-evangelical, kind of that title. Uh, obviously, all three of those are distinct, though they have some kind of uh, you know playover depending on who you talk to. But the similarities with the social activists of the 70s and now is just, it, it, it's mind-blowing. Like, I cannot get over how similar it is. So, for the social activists of the 70s, they were very uneasy about what the church talked about, how the church uh, spoke about the Bible, how they said it was God's word, how they took it uh, to be what it said. It, you know, to, For example, Jonah and the well, that's a real story. Jesus' resurrection, that's true. Um, the virgin birth, they held to that. And the early social justice activists, just, they didn't like that. So they came out of fundamentalism. And what we see now with a lot of the categories that I mentioned before, the progressive Christian church, ex-evangelicals, right? A lot of them came out of the conservative Christian movement, which is distinctively different from fundamentalism, but there's enough similarities. And they, they, they had the same issues with the conservative Christian church. As far as its view on the Bible, it's preaching about resurrection, virgin birth, uh, some of its views on the atonement. And so they were already uneasy about that. But starting about 2013, 14, 15, a lot of people uh, that, that were already uneasy um, really became even more uneasy as I, when the church started reacting in, in a way to the Black Lives Matter uh, organization. Uh, much like the social justice activists of the 70s were very uneasy about the civil rights movement and how the church reacted then. And then came this kind of generation's Vietnam in regards to the election of Donald Trump in 2016. This seems to be, to me, as far as I'm just looking at the landscape here and comparative-wise, this seems to be sort of this generation's Vietnam in the sense that what really bonded the social activists together in the 70s being Vietnam was really what bonded the progressive Christians, the deconstructionists, the ex-evangelicals, what really kind of bonded them together, get, started kind of uh, the momentum to go outside of the church was the final straw seemed to be Donald Trump's election in 2016 or the subsequent campaign that happened in 2020. Uh, within those four to six years, right, that there's a lot of this brewing. And then 2020 happens. Uh, 2020 uh, was an interesting year for a lot of different reasons, obviously. Uh, Black Lives Matter uh, really came into more prominence with uh, George Floyd and that everything that happened there. And then, of course, we had, you know, where everybody just didn't have to go to church anymore because there was a shutdown. And that gave uh, a lot of people that were already kind of teetering on the edge an opportunity to say, I'm just not going back anymore. So the similarities here are, are, are amazing. Now, there's two things I haven't mentioned, uh, or one thing primarily, I suppose, that I haven't mentioned that is different between the social activists of the 70s and now. And that is word of mouth. So Harris notes in his book that in the 70s, uh, early to mid, those social activists, uh, social justice activists, basically were... They were, they were kind of barred in by the fact that they did not believe that radio and television were the means that they wanted to use in order to get their message out because those things were connected to uh, the man, the government, and they didn't trust that. And the conservative Christians at the time did. And so because conservative Christians like uh, Pat Rod Robertson, for example, in the 700 Club, like they, they dove all into that market. So everybody got to know them and 
the social justice movement sort of voice was drowned out with all of the conservative Christian um, things that happened, TBN, all of those that really just took over. Now, the, the flip is, uh, the script has kind of flipped now in the sense that um, those in the progressive Christian movement, the ex-evangelical, the uh, deconstruction movement have really embraced social media. They don't even need TV and radio. Forget that nonsense. They have podcasts and, and TikTok and YouTube and Instagram, and they do it really well, like really well. And so the difference here is that now the, the, the voice that was in the 70s is amplified now in, in very similar ways, very similar motives uh, for, for kind of what's driving this side of social justice. Only now the voice is amplified because you don't need television and radio anymore. You have access to everyone all at once. All you have to do is word of mouth. A share will grow a platform um, in a moment. So that brings us to um, the new definitions. So even though many people I found <laughs> in the process of this, this sort of research and getting ready for this, this series is that many people, even though many people would say Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility is a trash book that you would throw in the fire. Um, and by the way, I, I would agree uh, <laughs> uh, for different reasons. But um, they say that uh, her book's not good because she's not a real critical race theorist. Um, real quick, before we go any further, I do want to note um, the critical theory movement is really interesting to me in that it does mirror a lot of the fundamentalist kind of Christian um, tenets. And I don't know if it knows it does or not, but it does in the sense that if you don't agree with like the baseline of what they're saying, they don't even want to talk to you. Um, if you're not in, you're definitely out. Um, and, and, and the tenets are held up with like religious dogma and belief and like fire behind them. Like it's just very interesting to see. If you watch some of the links down in the description, you'll see that like it's very much I don't have to talk to you because you don't agree with me. And that's the same. That's the same kind of feeling that you get from the fundamentalist church. So I found that interesting. But anyway, moving on. The new definitions are incredibly important. So whether they come from Bell or Crenshaw or even D'Angelo, which apparently stole a lot of those terms from the originators of critical race theory, the point is that the definitions still stand. Um, if you don't want to watch the whole book overview, that's fine. But I would encourage you to go back and at least watch the first couple of minutes because I go through the definitions that she breaks down in that. And I find those, th those are very important to understand. Because if you don't understand those, when you have conversations with people, uh, especially if you're on the conservative Christian side of things, and you have conversations with people in critical theory uh, or more in the social justice movement line of things, you're going to need to understand those terms so as to be able to, to actually have a conversation. So this is where the new definitions are incredibly important. As believers, as I said at the beginning of this video, this video is for believers. And I understand when I'm saying that um, there's going to be people from a wide range uh, of within Christianity that will attach themselves to that and say, well, I am involved in that group. So let me speak to basically two sides here. Within Christianity right now, we have two pretty um, vocal sides to this conversation on how the church should interact with social justice. On one side, we have uh, what I would consider the very conservative Christian side, which um, by and large um, admittedly does parrot a lot of what um, those that are against CTR 
uh, critical race theory or even critical theory say and know that critical theory isn't compatible with Christianity, but they can't really speak to why. Um, and then you have the other side, which is all for social justice and is doing the exact same thing, basically parroting the ideas of why critical theory is important to the church and can't really explain much past that. Now, by and large, again, there's obviously people in those categories that do know. And as I said at the beginning, or I, I, if I didn't say at the beginning, let me say it now. I'm not an expert on this at all. Um, in fact, I, I, I'd say I barely scratched the surface of this. And I'm operating with, I feel like, at least a workable understanding of what, what the issue is. I'm sure some people think I'm, I'm incorrect in that statement. But here's, here's the thing. On one side, we have people that don't understand the definitions and just say it's bad. On the other side, we have people that say it's a necessary thing and are shouting the definitions at the other side. And now everyone's just screaming at each other. And so now what you have is instances like we have uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, in case you don't know a little bit about that, Vody Bauckham actually covers it in a whole chapter in his book, Fault Lines. But essentially what you have is kind of the Vody Bauckhams of the church going against the Jamar Tisbys of the church. Uh, on on Vody's side, he says that critical race theory is, or critical theory in general is just is wrong and bad and should not be pursued and is fighting uh, and has encouraged people to fight Resolution I within the Southern Baptist Convention, which says that the church should use critical theory as a tool to help view, um, view society. And Vody says, no, we shouldn't use that as a tool. Then we have Jamar Tisby on the other side in his book, uh, really walking through it. If you want to watch that review, you can as well. Again, kind of trying to walk this line of having one foot in the church and one foot in society and trying to say, um, you know, the church can use this as a tool and we should use this as a tool and it actually helps us be better Christians. And so you have these two sides going at each other. And the new definitions are key to this argument, this battle, this fight, whatever you want to call it, because if we don't understand where the other side is coming from, we're going to have a really hard time interacting. Now, as I already said at the beginning of this video, I think it's pretty obvious which side I'm on. Looking at the data that I've looked at from both sides, I can't help but side with like the Vodibachums of the world that say that uh, critical theory is not uh, helpful or compatible with Christianity. Now, again, hopefully I explained myself well enough at the beginning of this video. If you didn't, make sure you comment. I will try to get back to you um, depending on, you know, kind of the load of comments that come in. Um, but the idea being that even with these understandings and these new, new definitions, it's causing a lot of confusion uh, within this conversation. So let's move on to the next part about how the church is reacting to this whole thing. Obviously, I've already said that the two sides are fighting. So this reaction is obviously volatile, is obviously um, it, there's a lot of tension here. So, so how do we handle how we're reacting to the situation? Because there are some churches that have flat out left denominations over this saying that, no, this, is, this, this critical theory is important and it should be integrated. And there's other churches doubling down saying, no, we, we, don't, we do not need it. So I guess the question is, is a split inevitable? Is there, is there any way to, to come together on this issue? Well, in Vodibachum's book, Fault Lines, he, he flat out says there's not. Um, from what he sees coming, there is an inevitable split that is going to happen on this issue. Jamar Tisby seems to um, have a little bit more of an optimistic 
um, kind of view on it in regards to he he thinks we can walk this line being the church and also uh, kind of integrating some of these principles in order to see how we should you know interact with society and th- see things I think he would probably say see them a little bit clearer see them from other people's perspectives is how he, he would likely put it so you have these two sides so is Tisby right in regards to that we, we should be able to interact with society using this as a tool or is Vody right? And he says an inevitable split is coming. Well, that, that gets to my, that my, my predictions part of this video. That the data that I see and the people that I've talked to, um, I just don't know outside of a real revival uh, within the church at large, if that is going, if we can, if we can be together on this issue. And it's really sad to me because there's a lot of people that I know that are, that are just, they love Jesus. They, they know their Bible. They're, they, I mean, they're being sanctified. Like it's not that they're out here, you know, wanting to destroy all the things. But they do hold to a view that critical theory is important. And then I know with people on the other side that, um, that are dead set on you do not integrate this. And here's the reality. like There's no resolution in that argument that doesn't end in a split. Again, outside of God just coming in and bringing unity. So my prediction, looking at the data, is simply this, that I think in the next 10 years, if I'm, if I'm honest with you, this is just my guess, but looking at the trajectory of what's happening, what I see is, unfortunately, what Vody has already said, which is that there's an inevitable split happening. And I say this not only based on the data that I see within these, these books and what I look at when I look at critical theory that's you know, uh, really um, pushed and taught by those that are outside the church, is that there's not like a, a way that these two views can interact with one another. Um, some of the most, uh, I would call them extreme, you may use a different word, but some of the most extreme proponents of critical theory um, lean really heavily on this idea that any structure that's here right now is built on an evil system and must be torn down. And that includes the church. So it's really interesting to me that the church is trying to play nice in many regards with critical theory when critical theory says you need to be torn down. So what do we do with that? Well, I think in the next 10 years, what we're going to see is honestly, and I'll just flat out say this, we're going to see um, this idea that critical theory must be brought into the church in order to bring unity. Um, I think there's this some very well-meaning people that think that it will help and assist uh, in places that the church admittedly has failed before. And I think that's really what kind of enables this sort of thing to occur. Uh, what has brought people to the point of seeing theories such as critical theory or any other worldview Um, as helpful to scripture is when they look at the church and say, well, we failed here, here, and here. So what can we do to not fail there anymore? They see a lot of people leaving the church, as I mentioned before, over, you know, civil rights issues, over uh, gender and sexuality, over economics. And they go, we we want to, they, they see a perceived hemorrhaging and they want to stop that. They see wrongs that have been done and they want to right them. And they see critical theory or other worldviews um, as helpful to that. 
So honestly, in the next 10 years, I, I, I do not see a future currently. And I, again, this is all opinion. I could be totally wrong. I hope I am wrong. But what I see in the next 10 years is honestly that coming into the church, that being used as a tool within the wider church in order to, in an attempt to repair and to uh, unite um, people that have been separated by real and egregious sins. Now, my contention is, though, there will always be uh, what I would consider like a conservative Christian church that will say and stand alone on Scripture and say, no, I don't. We do not need another worldview to help us see economics or gender or ethnicity or relationships in a certain way, because the Bible already does that. But I see that that's what I see happening. And that's what I think is what's going to happen. The one difference now that hasn't been there in the past is what I mentioned before with social media and the ability of word of mouth to get out. I truly believe that that is the, the one part of the ingredient that wasn't there in the past. So for example, just as a quick history lesson, uh, a really quick fly overview. Uh, in the 70s, we've already talked about, there was this social justice movement that uh, really was questioning the validity of Scripture. Is it, is it inerrant? Is it uh, infallible? Um, is it the Word of God? Did the miracles really happen? The things that it claims, were they real or were they analogy? Uh, and you had really this, this battle over that. Well, obviously, that's not the first battle that was had over that. I mean, you can go back to the early 19th century and see the, the fundamentalist mon modern contra modernist controversy. I'll link uh, a book down below that kind of talked about that a little bit. And um, you, the same thing was sort of happening. Obviously, the, there wasn't certain components there. The civil rights movement wasn't there. The war wasn't there, though a little bit it was there as far as World War One and Two. But by and large, the core of this was all about the scriptures. Were they sufficient or were they just helpful? Even before this, you can go back to Charles Spurgeon and the downgrade controversy over in England, and you see the exact same thing. Is scripture sufficient? And you see this about every 50, 60 years over and over and over again. But in each of those instances, really the missing piece, what really uh, made it to where the conservatives, by and large, that message of scripture sufficiency sort of kind of maintained the upper ground, as it were, was because they had the louder voice. Um, there was more support. There was more backing there. I mean, even Spurgeon's downgrade controversy um, some would say that he lost, but by and large throughout time, you see that he actually came out on top during the modernist uh, fundamentalist controversy. The fundamentalist obviously came out on top because by the time we get to the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, this is the fundamentalist, move, fundamentalist movement is what these social activists were coming out of. And now the social activists we have now are really the children, uh, essentially, of the movements that happened in the 70s are now happening again. So I think what's going to happen in the next 10 years, and I say 10 and not 20, 30, 40, because the way social media travels, like there, there's just a, a speed to it that hasn't been there before. I think this is going to happen pretty quick. And I, I think most of us just looking at this, everything that's been going on, feel like, like it's happened really quick. A lot of people say, well, I've never heard of critical theory. I've never really heard of even social justice. Like it's just, it feels like it's hitting you like a train. Well, that's because again, information moves qu more quickly now. So that's my prediction. In the next 10 years, um, 
we'll easily see this real big shift, not just in the use of critical theory, but the things that critical theory brings along um, as far as how we view gender and sexuality, how we view economics, how we view uh, race and ethnicity, how we view power and structure and all of that. I think all of that's probably going to change. Could be wrong. We'll see. So what does the church do, though? So irregardless of my prediction or where we think this is going, what should the church do? I think it's really bad for the church whenever we jump on a bandwagon. Like, we get real reactionary to everything, right? And I think we're kind of known for that, right? We're known for, oh, they put out a genderless Mr. Potato Head, so now we're all going to ah, burn everything down, right? Uh, <laughs> like a show comes out and everybody's tweeting about it. It's not our best moments when we're reactionary. So what should we do? Well, I think we should do what we should have all already been doing. First, we should preach the word. But I'm not just saying just preach the word and bring people in and have the fireworks and the, the, the awesome music and the light. I, we, should, we should preach the word. And maybe that is what that looks like in your area for music and lights and fog and all that. But if, if, if you're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, his coming again, what that looks like, what that means, how that changes a person's life, how the Holy Spirit interacts with us in that in regards to sanctifying us to make us new and set apart. Like, fine, have all of that, but make sure you have the core message of the gospel there. We need to preach that, but not just preach it. We need to disciple better. Why do people accept worldviews so quickly? It's because there's nothing there in the first place. In many cases, critical theory is able to come into a Christian's life and take root because there is nothing there rooted in the first place. There was no basic understanding of what the Bible says about generosity. There was no basic understanding about what God says about sexuality. There was no basic understanding about what God says about gender and how marriage and family should be set up. There was no basic structure about how the church should be ran. There's no basic structure about God's law and how he, he, he handles cases of murder and witnesses and what it should look like and how we should operate. Like There was no understanding of that. All that was there was five ways to be a better you, five ways to have a better marriage, five ways to be financially free. That's what was there. And that can be uprooted really quickly and then placed upon it some other worldview or theory. So what we should do is, is preach the gospel. As much of an oversimplification as that sounds, that changes things. Because when I understand the gospel that I am a sinner in need of a savior and that when I follow Jesus and understand who he is and who I am and am indwelled by the Holy Spirit and now my life and mind are being changed, I don't need another worldview to come in and tell me you need to treat that person in a certain sort of way. I don't need to be told to be generous to somebody from an outside source because the Holy Spirit is working in my life through this reading of scripture, through the community that I'm in, through him just speaking that. So that now when I interact with others, I'm convicted about how I view them or speak to them or interact with them. That's called sanctification. So now when I have money, I deal with it differently. Now when I have free time, I handle that time differently. 
Now, when I look at gender and sexuality and how my relationship works with my wife versus how my relationship works with our kids and how my relationship works within the church, like all of that doesn't need to be informed by an outside source because we already have scripture and we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to guide us in that and change us in that. So that's what we should do. Preach the word, be in a community of believers, and seek after Jesus. And when we do those things, and I know so many people don't have a great example of what that looks like, and there's never going to be a perfect church. I'm telling you right now, guys, you're just not going to find it. But when you're in a church that is doing what it should do to the best of its ability, it will start because of good orthodoxy, good understanding of Scripture, good preaching and pursuing of the Word, right? That will automatically flow into good orthopraxy. Show me a church that understands who God is, who they are, and what they've been called to do. And I guarantee you they are a church that is in the community, in the town square, in jail ministries, in food pantries, in the school, in the lives of the people in, in the community that don't know Jesus, but they are there being Jesus to them. Now there is a side of that there are churches that are very much socially active but have a terrible gospel. And there are churches that have all the right things said but aren't in the community. And we need to avoid both of those like the plague. Because I don't care if you're doing things for the community, but you're not driven by the right reasons. And I don't care if you have all the right doctrine in the world. If it doesn't drive you to go pursue the kingdom of God now in the lives of those around you, what good is that doctrine? What we should do is pursue the gospel in community and be driven out into the town square for the glory of God. And in doing that, we're not going to have time to be super reactionary. And when things do try to creep their way into the church and say, you should view the people this way. This is how you should break down the structures. This is how you should see individuals here, here, and here based on this, that, and the other. We'll be able to say, well, actually, Actually, the scripture says this about ethnicity and how we should treat one another. It says a lot about prejudice. It says a lot about the weak and the oppressed. Like, this is, this is my view on how I deal with this. I don't, I don't need that. When we start to see things through a scriptural lens, when we're guided by the Holy Spirit, it's pretty obvious that we don't need other worldviews to speak into that. Because whether it be critical theory or any other tool or worldview, it will always fall short of being able to accomplish what it claims it can do. Because critical theory claims that it can eventually solve the sin problem of the world through certain actions and, uh, and, and things and steps you follow. But it will always and every time fall short of what Jesus does in a person's life. Where the gospel says, your heart and mind is changed. Go out with grace and mercy and forgiveness. Critical theory and other worldviews say, here's the problem. It can be solved through guilt, shame, and law. Now go out and spread that. So that's the gist of why I think that Christianity is not compatible with critical theory. 
I guess this video could have been also titled why I think Christianity isn't compatible with politics. Why I don't think Christianity is compatible with whatever fill in the world view because the scriptures are sufficient. So I want to end with this and encourage you to uh, do a few things. One, if you have time or at least try to make some time to look at some of the links in the description below. Uh, if you are strapped on time, ignore all of my videos, please, and go view the other videos in the description below because I think those will be valuable for you. Whether you agree with them or not, it will at least let you see the other side's perspective and help you build an apologetic in regards to how you should interact with that in a scriptural, biblical way. Guys, if this was helpful to you at all, and I really hope it was, make sure you like it, share it, comment, because that will get it out to more people. And I do plan on doing other uh, series such as this later on in the month of June as well. Guys, I can't thank you enough for watching this, getting this far in the video. And I can't thank people uh, such as my patrons enough for supporting me and helping me do this with their generous donations. Guys, I really appreciate it. Thanks for following, subscribing, liking, and commenting. I'll talk to you later.